The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. The scripture reading for today is Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there were just several moments this past week where the Lord very kindly, very graciously, and compassionately convicted me of my love, of my heart's desire for the things of this world. He gave me what I think I would call a, a gracious awareness of my heart's desire for worldly recognition, for possessions, for comforts, for an easy life, you name it. But in the midst of my heart being drawn towards these things, in the midst of my affections being stirred for these things, in me sensing that my love is growing for these things, the Lord gave me a sweet, sweet awareness and conviction. I think C.S. Lewis would, would put it this way. He'd say that we're half-hearted creatures, that, that you and I, that we're far too easily pleased. Lewis would say that you and I are like children who are satisfied with mud pies in the slums when there is a feast awaiting us by the sea. So for Lewis, it's not that we desire too much, but it's that we desire too little. That's a thought, isn't it? And for the child, you can't convince the child 
by telling them over and over again that mud pies aren't good. That won't do anything. The child needs what? The child needs to see, to taste, to experience something better. Something better, right? I think that the psalm for this morning, the psalm we're going to walk through, I think it's an opportunity for us to taste something better. I think this psalm is an opportunity for our affections, once again, that can be so dull or or maybe feel completely non-existent at times, to be stirred for Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to fix our, our hearts and our eyes, our ears, on the beauty of God. So, so that's simply my prayer this morning. Um, my prayer this morning is that as we walk through this psalm, and as we reflect on our story, as we reflect on what God has, has done for us, and what God is doing for us, who he is for us, that our affections would be deeply stirred for him. And that it would enable us, empower us to go into the world this week, to love him, to serve him, to once again give our lives for him. Okay, so I want to do that by focusing our attention on three things in this psalm. Three things. So first, I want us to enter into the psalm by meditating on the life-threatening situation that the psalmist was in. I want us to enter into the psalm by meditating on the life-threatening situation that the psalmist was in. Look at verse 3 with me, if you have your Bibles. He says this, The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. So, you know, in cartoons and movies where there's a hunter and the hunter has this net and then the hunter throws the net on the prey that he is hunting and so the prey, whether that's an animal or that's an individual, is just completely stuck I don't know why for me right now, but Jurassic Park's coming to my head. It's probably because we just watched it here. Nets didn't work too well for the dinosaurs. But nonetheless, so you get the image, right? Um, that's the image that the psalmist paints here, except the hunter is death. Um, and so the image is that death has cast this net on the psalmist, and he's completely in, entangled. And actually, I think the image might be more like a horror film. I know your thoughts are on horror films. I know a lot of us aren't big fans. Um, I, I did have a, a friend that wrote a Christian defense of horror films. Um, if you're interested in that, you can see me after the service. What am I talking about? The image! It's more like, it's more like a horror film. Why do I say that? Because... The psalmist is in this net, and it's like 
death is dragging him into the grave. That's the situation that he's in. That's the imagery that's given. It's not too cheery. Uh, So what's going on? What is this imagery in the psalm provoking? What is the psalmist's life-threatening situation? Well, we don't know. Um, We're not given that bit of information. So it's possible that the psalmist is in battle, and and he was surrounded by his enemies. And there was no way out. He was sure that death had taken him. Or maybe the psalmist was sick and he thought that there was no no hope. No way to get better. right? Or, or maybe it's, it's something else. We don't know. But what we do know is that the psalmist is facing death. He's facing death. And in the midst of facing death, he is filled with anguish and sorrow. He's done. He's at his end. There is no hope. In in the psalm, as he's reflecting on this life-threatening situation, as he's being pulled in to the grave, there's this bit in verse 11 that's a little odd, seems a little out of place. He says this, he says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Why does he include this in the psalm? Well, it's possible that the psalmist was betrayed by friends, maybe, and it led to this situation. Uh, But there's also the possibility that this line is communicating something else. And what's that? Well, there's the possibility that this line is communicating that the psalmist, as he faces death, realizes that there is nothing in this world and there is no one in this world that can help him. The things of this world that maybe he put his hope in to save him cannot save him now. The things that look so strong The things that look so sure in the face of death now completely crumble. His only hope is in God. As I've said before, we live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about death. Now, I'm a little weird. I, I, I kind of like to talk about death. I don't have a death wish. But I, 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 I do, I, I like to meditate on it and, and contemplate it. And my wife just thinks I'm totally weird. You know, it's like a beautiful Saturday afternoon and the birds are chirping and she's like, what do you want to watch on TV? And I'm like, how about a documentary about a serial killer or something like that? And she's like, what is, what is wrong with you, right? But I, we live in a culture that, that doesn't want to face death, right? Um, We would prefer that death stay in nursing homes and hospitals and cemeteries on the edge of town just far away enough that we don't have to interact with it, right? 
that we don't have to think about it. It's out of mind, and it's out of, out of sight. Yet, for the Christian to face suffering and to face death is an opportunity to gain wisdom. Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days so that we may get what? Wisdom. Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Wow. It was good for me that I was afflicted so I might learn your statutes. You see, death and suffering have this ability. They have this ability to reveal the frailty. Um, They have this ability to reveal the fleetingness of the things of this world, the things that look so strong to us, the things that look so powerful to us, the things that we daily put our hope in. Lord, teach us to number our days. Why? Because we have a death wish? No. Why? Because we're morbid? We want to be morbid? No. Why? So that we may gain wisdom, so that we may see that our only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ. Think about a time when suffering in your life or a time where you faced death just forced you to come to know what you daily profess, that your only hope is in Jesus. That your only hope is in Jesus. What an what a amazing thing it is that as Christians, whether it be suffering, whether it be death, whether it be pain, no, no matter what it is, in the midst of it, there is always an opportunity for wisdom. There is always an opportunity to see what I needed to see this week, that our only hope is Jesus Christ. That our only hope is Jesus Christ. So, the psalmist in this situation, in his anguish, being at his end, as he suffers, as he faces death, comes to see that his only hope is in the Lord. And and so he calls on the Lord. Lord, save me. Lord, deliver me from this situation. And the Lord does. The Lord does. And that leads me to the next thing that I want us to meditate on. Secondly, I want us to join the psalmist in his meditation on the Lord's deliverance. I want us this morning together to join the psalmist in his meditation on the Lord's deliverance. Look at verse 2 with me, and then we're going to skip to verses 5 and 6. Verse 2. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 2, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Now to verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. As I was meditating on these verses, 
You know what came to my mind? What, what came to my mind was Jesus' interaction with the thief on the cross. Jesus' interaction with the thief on the cross. I think that Jesus embodies these verses in his interaction with the thief on the cross. Think about it with me. Verse 1, the Lord has heard my voice. It's like the Lord bent down and gave the psalmist his ear. Uh, He inclined his ear to me. He's gracious, righteous, merciful. He preserves the simple, or it can be translated the helpless, the, the uninformed, those in need. He saved me when I brought I was brought low. I think Jesus embodies these verses with his interaction with the thief on the cross. So recently there was a sermon clip that kind of went viral. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I'm still waiting for that moment, you know, my sermon clip to go viral. Although I think it would probably just be something super embarrassing. Like, I don't know, passing out in front of the congregation. (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. But Alistair Begg, he's kind of this fiery Scottish preacher, and I'm not going to be able to imitate what he did, but essentially he's talking about the thief on the cross, and in kind of this comical way, he talks about the thief getting to heaven and this angel coming up to him, with a puzzled look on his face, and the angel's like, what the heck are you doing here? And the thief goes, I don't know. And so then the angel brings in, like, the supervisor angel. (laughs) And it's an illustration, right? This is okay. Um, And so the angel brings in, like, the supervisor angel, and the supervisor angel looks confused, is pulling out papers, and he looks at the thief, and he goes, on what basis are you here? And the thief looks back at him and says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I can come. This is not just the thief's statement. This is our statement. This is our story. We are the thief on the cross May we not just limit the thief on the cross to deathbed conversions. We are the thief on the cross. May we not be foolish enough to think that we have earned our salvation through our life. I mean, Romans 5, 6 through 8, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, and while we were what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You see, for Paul, God has done something absolutely insane. God has given his best gift. God has given his gift of salvation, the gift of 
his son in Jesus Christ, not to friends, but to enemies, not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us. We were helpless, dead, entangled in a net of sin and death and evil and suffering. And God, like a loving parent, knelt down, gave us his ear, entered in and rescued us On the cross, Jesus Christ rescued us from sin, from death, and from the devil. We have salvation in him. So, as the psalmist reflects on this great love, as the psalmist reflects on this mercy, on this graciousness, on the salvation that he's received from the Lord, not by his own doing, not by his works, not because he was powerful, but because God entered into his pain. What does that mean for him in the present? Well, two things the text draws us to. One, it means love. Look at verse one with me. Verse one, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. And my pleas for mercy. Do you not resonate with the psalmist as he says this? I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I think it's important as we think about this verse to think about the nature of the love that's expressed here. Um, I think it's important to point out that the love that the psalmist expresses here, it's it's not a first date kind of love. Uh, It's not butterflies in the stomach. It's not sweaty palms kind of love. What kind of love is it? It's it's walk down the aisle love. It's, It's here is my life kind of love. It's here I am, no matter what kind of love. It's a love of joy? Yes. My friend just recently performed his first wedding. He officiated his, his first wedding, and he was talking about how the bride and the groom were just completely sobbing through the vows, right? Those of you that have been married a long time might know that you sob through your vows for other reasons, but, you know, in the moment, that's a joke. In the moment, it, right, it, a beautiful expression of love and commitment. For better, for worse, and sickness and health, richer, for poor, it, it, it doesn't matter. I give myself to you. It's, it's a faithful joyful love. And and that's the love that the psalmist expresses here. Um, This is the type of love that's produced in a heart that has experienced the goodness of God. This is the kind of love that's produced in a heart that has experienced the salvation of the Lord. The psalmist goes on to say, 
Lord, I'm, I'm your servant. Um, and he's, he says in the text, uh, I'm your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. Which we might say, why would he in- include that? I think this is a way of the psalmist expressing, I- I'm totally yours. I-, I am totally your servant, no matter what comes. I, I tell couples in, in premarital counseling, I, every time I say that we all love for, a, we all long for a deep love in marriage, right? Um, and the good news is that deep love, faithful love, the love that we all long for, um, grows in the soil not of chemistry and attraction. What does it grow in? Deep love grows in the soil of faithfulness and commitment. So with the psalmist, um, do you want your affections to be stirred for the Lord? Remember his salvation and daily offer yourself to him totally anew. And as you do that, day after day after day, a love develops, a faithful love develops that you at this point can't fathom or comprehend because deep love grows in the soil of faithfulness. And the psalmist sees, I can trust the Lord. He's good. He's delivered me. And so I will call on him all my days. I will continue to go to him again and again because he's, because he's good. Because he's good. Okay, I said the Lord's salvation means love in the present for the psalmist, but it also means something else in the present. What else? Look at verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The psalmist talks to himself. I love that. And as the psalmist talks to himself, He talks to himself in a way that's different than we often talk to ourselves. Normally when we talk to ourselves, and this is just based on my experience in talking with others, it's a voice of judgment. It's a voice of shame. It's a voice of guilt. And I've started telling to other, I've started telling other people as they talk to me and they tell me the thoughts they have in their head, I just simply ask, Is that from the Holy Spirit? That voice of shame, that voice of guilt, that voice of judgment, is that the voice of the Holy Spirit? Or is that something else? Here the psalmist talks to himself, and it's not shame or guilt or judgment. No, it's an individual who's who's experienced the salvation of the Lord. (laughs) And he says, what? Oh, my soul, return... um, Return to your rest. Um, For the psalmist, rest is found in a relationship. Um, The psalmist now sees that no matter what comes his way, no matter what troubles, no matter what woes, he will be okay because the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. The Lord 
has dealt generously with him. The Lord has dealt kind with him. I, I don't know about you, but do, do Jesus' words not come to mind here? Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Yes. Rest. Jesus offers our weary souls to come and have rest. Are you tired of running the race of self-justification? Are you tired of constantly trying to find and create a new identity? Um, are, you, are you tired of constantly trying to prove yourself? Here's one that I've experienced this past week. Are you tired of constantly trying to secure your own future? Isn't it exhausting? Isn't it exhausting to constantly be working to try to secure your own future through your striving and through your anxious thoughts? It's exhausting. And Jesus comes with this offer of rest for our souls. And, and we know, I don't need to tell you, that this is not an offer of an easy life. It's what? It's an offer of himself. It's a relationship. And who is he? He's gentle and he's lowly in heart. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's, he's approachable. Maybe you've never had someone in your life like that. Or, or maybe you didn't have a parent like that. Or maybe you've been in an, another intimate relationship and you don't know what it means to go to someone and experience kindness and compassion and patience. You don't know what it's like to be met with grace and not judgment. Jesus is the relationship that gives rest to our souls. For he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so I, I don't know what you're facing right now, but you have one who is for you. You have one who delights in you. You have one who is working out. Lord, give us faith. You have one that's working out every detail of your life for your good. Can you rest in that this morning? You have one who's given you an identity. What a thought. You have nothing to prove to anybody. You have been given an identity as a beloved son in Daughter, your soul can rest this morning. Yeah, but this is coming up and, and this is happening and I, we don't know what the next month's going to look like and how are we going to, and what if this, and uh, there's this stuff going on and it just seems like chaos. And honestly, I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to get out of the chaos. You can rest because you have Jesus. 
because you have Jesus. Okay, the last thing that I want to draw our attention to this morning is I want us to see the psalmist as a guide. I want us to see the psalmist as a guide showing us how to respond to God's generous gift of salvation. As a guide to show us how to respond to the Lord's generous gift of salvation. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I think as we read these verses, we need to be careful that we, in our walk with the Lord, don't adopt a mentality that I'm calling the debtor's ethic. The debtor's ethic. And I, I didn't come up with this. I stole this from another pastor. So, um, But I think it's helpful. Uh, it goes something like this. Tell me if you fall into this. Uh, the debtor's ethic says that our Christian life is simply an attempt to pay back the unending debt that we owe to God. It's like we got this insane mortgage, um, and we have to pay it back, right? And we're just getting reamed with interest. Um, we, our Christian life is this attempt to pay back the unending debt we owe to God, and of course, there's no way that we'll ever pay it back, but we try our best through good deeds and through religious acts. Now, I think we could stop and have a conversation about all the ways that this is problematic. I, I think one of the primary ways that it's problematic is besides a transactional kind of relationship with God, which, if we're honest, more times than not, we tend to fall into, no matter how good our theology is, not only because of that, but because of the view of salvation. It, it sees the Christian life as being outside of our salvation. Like salvation is something that we're simply paying God back, or excuse me, that our Christian life is something that we're simply paying God back for. Um, rather, when we look at the scriptures, we see a picture of salvation that is so much more robust, right? Not only that God is his justifying, has justified us, but he's what? He's making us holy. Yes, that he is sanctifying us. That he's making us new. That he's making us new. And I think in verse 12, the psalmist's question of what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me shows the, the foolishness of viewing the Christian life through the debtor's ethic. Um, because the question itself that the psalmist asks shows the impossibility of attempting to pay God back. <laughs> How foolish it is to even think like that. Another pastor wrote, you can't give anything to God or do anything for God that he hasn't first given to you and done for you. That's worth thinking about this morning. Let me say it again. You can't give anything to God or do anything for God that he hasn't first given to you and done for you. Think 1 Corinthians 15. 
where Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but what? The grace of God that is with me. None of our work can be a payment to God because the very work we would give would be another gift from God. (laughs) Do you see his goodness? Do you see his generosity? So if, if this is the case, if really our entire life, everything that we have from the food that we eat to the shelter that we have to the relationships that flourish us to the pardon for sins to us growing in discipleship to Jesus Christ is really a work of God's grace, then what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I think the psalmist shows us in these verses. He says, I can't repay the Lord for what he's done, but what can I do? I can declare before others what he's done for me. I can declare before others what he's done for me. I think that the lifting up of the cup of salvation is is metaphorical here. It's possible that it's literal, but I think it's metaphorical for the psalmist saying, I'm putting the Lord's salvation on display for all to see in the congregation so everyone will know of his saving acts. And in, in regards to the vows, um, in the Old Testament, when people were in distress, they would make vows like, Lord, when you deliver me from blank, I will tell others of what you've done. I, I think he's saying the response is to give testimony. The response is to declare what the Lord has done in our life, not only through word in the context of worship, but with the entirety of our being, with our whole lives. Let me just end with this. I thought it was really interesting uh, what one commentator said as he was talking about testimony. Interesting for our context here at Shades. I'm curious to hear what you think. He says this, in talking about corporate worship, the commentator writes, testimony can create beautiful moments in the life of the pious. Talking about corporate worship. Regrettably, however, in our need to manage time, stay on message, and control quality, the notion of testimony has become a vestige of the past in most of our worship services. Huh. There is no room for thanksgiving, no room for testimony. Interesting criticism. For some, these are antiquated practices of another generation. Yet the truth is that for some people in the pews before us, since that the cords of death are surrounding them. Is that true? Some feel trapped, overcome by distress and sorrow, and they are weary from stumbling. They are less concerned about time management, messaging, and quality control in the worship service because they simply need to know there is still hope. They simply need to know that God is still at work. Don't you love it when you do something right? Don't you love it when you do something right? Shades, we are terrible at time management. 
I have no idea when, when we're going to get out of this service, right? Um, quality control, we have no idea what's going to happen each Sunday, right? We have no idea what's going to be said, but we do one thing well. We make space for testimony. We make space for testimony, right? And this isn't just something in this community that a few do, right? This is something that we're all called to because we are all called to bear testimony with our lips and with our life. So yes, we have body life where people get up and share testimony, but each Sunday, the mic is open in the back half of the service, and that is for you. That's for you to come up and to share testimony about what the Lord is doing in your life. We desperately, and I'm not overstating this, we desperately need to hear testimony. Um, right now, let's be honest, we are in a moment where it is so easy for us to divide as the church. It's so easy for us to put people into different groups, and this person's on my team, and that person's on the other team, and I need to persuade them of this, and I need to persuade them of that, and all of a sudden, we start viewing one another simply as problems to be solved. And all of a sudden, we start viewing the, the church, the community of the faithful, not as, as brothers and sisters, but as people to be argued with. And what we need desperately in this moment is we need testimony. I need to hear what the Lord is doing in your life. We need to see that we are more than a Facebook post. We are more than our opinions. We are brothers and sisters. And so the mic is open in the back half of this service. And if you feel like the Lord is leading you to share something, come and share the ways that the Lord has delivered you. Whether it be in this season, whether it be in your life, I don't care. And I don't know when we're going to get out. It may be 11.50, it may be 12.30. You can leave when you need to. But I want to, this morning, open up a space for testimony, for praise, because we need it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Give your people images. Give your people words. Give your people praise. For you have saved us. What else are we to do? Amen.